Well, it's really good to be here. Uh, I got to preach last week in a church that had the average attendance of seven. Uh, so that was an honor, too, and, and this is a whole different kind of thing. It's really great to look out and see all of you. Um, I'm going to preach this morning from First um, Timothy, the first chapter of First Timothy. If you want to um, open your Bibles or look at that. We're not going to dig, uh, we're not going to canvas a lot of text. I'm actually going to preach on about nine words, so I, I don't do this very often. I really like to exposit a text, but I looked at these nine words and thought, that's all we got time for. Um, uh, we're we're going to look at those. The, the nine words I'm looking at are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul says, some, this is the phrase, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, if you go through and cancel out the ofs and the thes, you're really down to four words. Gospel, glory, blessed God. Um, and, and that's what I want to talk about. We could pump it up to 20 words if you wanted. You get a little more context for safety. You could look at the whole phrase uh, where Paul's talking about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which, with which I have been entrusted. It's interesting. The reason I feel safe to just sort of pluck this out of context and just talk this morning about uh, those four key words, gospel, glory, blessed God, um, is because it's a little out of context here in Paul's letter. You know, 1 Timothy, it's not like one of Paul's letters to the churches where he's greeting them and doing various things and putting teaching in place. He's writing to Timothy. He knows he can trust Timothy. He can kind of cut right to the business. And in this letter, he does. Paul jumps right into, you know who makes me mad? You know, Paul, Paul's just saying, Brother Timothy, you know who really irritates me? People who mess up the Christian gospel. And let me tell you about them. And there's a sense in which it's kind of an unedifying beginning of the letter. This is one of the letters where we're reading someone else's mail. And you get into it, and well, what's Paul, he's, he's mad about right away. These people who twist the gospel. Um, he's struggling against some bad, unsound teachers who have, look at verse 3, a different doctrine. We don't know exactly what this different doctrine is that they're spreading, uh, but we know, if you look at verse 4, that it involves myths and endless genealogies and speculations. Now, you could do background work and try to read between the lines and figure out exactly what problem Paul's confronting uh, through Timothy and Ephesus. You could do all that historical work. But basically, if you've been around the church very long, you know the type, right? If I ask you, Who's always up in your face about myths and endless genealogies and speculations? And you've probably met this kind of person, right? Like, they meet you, they're happy that you're a Christian, but then they say, are you ready to go to the next level? And then they, they introduce you to some complex, difficult thing in the Bible, and you say, how come I've never heard this before? And they say, oh, because this is the secret sauce. Like, this is the stuff that really takes you to the next level. And then they talk. And when they start talking, you didn't believe them, but the more they talk, their eyes kind of start rotating, and you start going, yeah, I guess it is. I never thought how there must really be 13 tribes of Israel. Uh, you know, I never, and it's just on and on like that. Um, and Paul basically saying, stop them. Paul comes close here to engaging in close combat with these false teachers. And I'll be honest, I'm a theologian, but when I start reading this, I think, this kind of argument with that kind of teacher this is the kind of stuff that makes people hate theology. You know what I mean? Like they're going to have to bicker because these people have got their noses deep in the Bible and they're making stuff up. It's speculations. It's endless genealogies and myths. And I think, 
wow, I mean, I guess you got to do it. You know, false teaching with a different gospel means you got to do good teaching with the right gospel. So you got to roll up your sleeves and get in there. But it's just this kind of dust of combat that I think, that's not why I went into theology. I wanted to talk about God. I think Paul feels that right about verse 11, where he's just listed all these evildoers and ne'er-do-wells and problem-causers, and he says, that stuff is not in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And you can see him kind of throwing up a line to say, what's this all about? It's about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. I've been entrusted with that, and that little phrase, according to. When he looks at all this false teaching, he says, i got to check if it lines up. Does it line up? Is it according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? This gospel that Paul's talking about, that he's been entrusted with as a teacher, it's the kind of thing you can use to test other things with. You can take them and see, is that according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? Well, uh, basically, oh, and then he moves down in verse 15. Um, He's working through this again, and he says, the saying is trustworthy, and it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. That's really easy. So I just want to look at these three points here. The gospel of God, we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about it as the gospel of God. We're going to talk about it as the gospel of the glory of God. And then finally, my main point, I want to spend some time looking at the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Okay. So first of all, it's the gospel of God. This is a phrase Paul uses several times in his letters. And it just sort of jerks your head around and makes you realize, I understand the gospel is all about a problem that I have as an unholy person who needs to relate to a holy God. I need forgiveness. I'm in a real fix here. How will you solve my problem? I need some gospel for that. That is true and real, and that's where it makes contact with your life. But then you take a step back and go, but it's really a gospel of God, right? I come with my actual needs and my felt needs and my urgent needs, and I get the good news of salvation. Yes. And then, the more I'm in it, the more I lift my eyes up and realize the good news is not just my salvation, but it is also, behind that, the the good news that there's a good God. That's what the gospel of God is, right? Yes, I urgently must have these spiritual needs met, but as soon as I'm in there in the mix, I realize the good news is that God is good. Um, the, the good news of the truth of God is, as Paul says in one place, let God be true and every man a liar. Right? You get into it and say, yes, I want to become the kind of person who speaks the truth, but the real bottom line good news is that God speaks the truth, that God is true even if everyone's a liar. I need to be justified by grace through faith, but what really matters is that God is just in his dealings with people. If, this is imaginary, but if there was some way that I could be justified and set right with God, but God had to sort of cut his standards or slack off or something or be a less righteous God, that wouldn't be good news, right? The justification of the sinner is only good news because of the justification of God, that God is proved righteous. What that means is, yes, we have salvation, but to understand what's going on there, you've got to start further back. You've got to get back to the fact that Um, I I think John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. God is the Gospel. Isn't that great? Like, There's all these things we can enumerate that are blessings of the Gospel, but Piper just puts it right there on the book cover. God is the Gospel. It's reflections not on the gift of salvation, but on the giver of salvation. I strongly recommend that book, even though I've never read it. The title's so good. The, the, The title makes the point in four words. It's just exactly right. 
God is the gospel. Um, it's so easy to get a little off track uh, by focusing on the gift rather than letting it do what it's supposed to do. Draw your mind back up to the goodness of the giver. What I want to say here is that the gospel of God calls us to the fact that we are supposed to have great thoughts of God. We're supposed to have exalting thoughts of God, as John quoted from Tozer this morning. Um, what comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And this is not a hobby, like some people are into football, I'm into theology, we've all got our things. Um, right? I mean, this is on my list of interests and hobbies, and if I couldn't get someone to pay me to be a theologian for a living, this would be what I would do as a hobby. I would read comic books, and I would think about God. Like, not together, but like, those would be on my list of hobbies. But this transcends that. This is actually all Christians, all believers have it as almost a command. Thou shalt think about God. In fact, thou shalt be interested in God. In fact, I don't know how to, can you put it this way? Thou shalt find God interesting. And if you think about God and call God to mind and think, yeah, not really much to think about there. You know, what's on TV? What's there that's interesting to think about? Other subjects are cool, but what could you possibly think about God that could catch your attention, that could catch you up in contemplation of who God is? Well, whatever that is, you've got to find it because there's, an, there's a command, there's an obligation on you to be interested in God. Well, I could say a lot more about how it's a gospel of God, but that's just kind of the opening move because I want to talk about the gospel of the glory of God. It's good news that there's a good God, and it's good news that that God is glorious. It is good, saving news that the God of Jesus Christ is a God of glory. The glory of God, I'm going to try to define glory here briefly. The glory of God is God being God. It's God being characteristically God. When God is recognizably, identifiably God, when God gods, <laughs> when, when God's godish or godly, that's glory. It's God behavior. God behaving is glory. When God is famous for being God, God is having glory, spreading glory, making his glory known. Now, it's a definition, but it's probably a little bit tautological, right? God being God, does that count as a definition? Well, I'm afraid when you get to the level of God, you're not going to be able to define him by other more general things, right? Like, as if I were to say, define the glory of God and give me two examples. I can't. There's exactly one. I can point to it and say, that's it. God being God, that's glory. Because um, it's hard to talk about because the glory of God is sort of all of God's perfections all together shining forth. I say God's perfections. Maybe old-fashioned language for it would be God's attributes. Have you heard of the attributes of God, the perfections of God? Um, they're these things God has that as we reflect on different aspects of who God is, we say, that's an attribute, and that's an attribute, and that's an attribute. This is a great area of systematic theology. One of the great things about it is nobody knows how many there are. How many attributes of God are there? I have no idea. Which ones do you label? How do you label them? You can do a Bible study, of course, and go through and try to collect everything that is said about God and affirmed about God's character, and you have all those attributes of God. God has lots of perfections, though. Um, these are the realities that faith feeds on. When you're having great thoughts of God, when you are fulfilling the commandment, thou shalt be interested in God, and you're thinking on aspects of his character, 
These are the ones you get to. You know the little prayer, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food? You still say that? I don't say it much because the, the approximate rhyme bothers me. Good, food, that, 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 that distracts me, then I'm out of the moment. Um, uh, so, like, poetically, I have an issue with that. But, you know, it's concise, it's memorable. God is great, God is good. Uh, let us thank him for our food. Um, it, what does it do? You've got food right in front of you, meeting some immediate physical needs that we've all got, and you're calling your mind to a couple of attributes of God. Like, okay, I'm about to eat this chicken. Guess what? God is great. God is good. And the interesting thing, I prayed that prayer for years before I realized, these are two distinct divine attributes. Like, all of a sudden, I was trying to just have lunch, but it got very theological. That God is both great and good, and that these are conceptually different attributes. It's one thing for God to be great, that is, big, powerful, mighty, um, in charge of everything, shiny. I don't know, whatever great would be, the greatness of God, the bigness of God. That's fantastic. And the next sentence we say is, God is good. And this draws your attention to his character, to his moral character, to the goodness of God. You know, that, that, he's, uh, that he does the right thing, and all the attributes like righteousness would go over there. Imagine if you had a God who was great, but not good. The first thing you want to say is, that would not be God. That would be terrible. That would be a nightmare. Imagine if there was a being who had all the divine greatness, but did not have the divine goodness. We would not call that being God. That's terrible to even contemplate. But imagine that we had a God who was good, had all the moral perfections, but wasn't great. We would also not call that being God, because this would be some sort of very large fellow sufferer who was in trouble with us and really felt bad for us and intended good things, but just couldn't do much about it because, you know, it's not that great. Uh, that would be bad. Do you see the depth of the theological affirmation when you say God is great, God is good? Yeah. It doesn't matter that it doesn't rhyme very well with food. It kind of rhymes with food. Um, those are just two of the divine attributes. And like I said, we don't know how many divine attributes there are. It's kind of irrelevant to try to count them. There are a great number of perfections of the character of God. But if you take all of what it means to be God, the goodness and the mercy and the truth and the faithfulness, the beauty, the steadfastness, the patience, you take the wisdom, you take all those divine perfections, you bundle them up with those uh, omni-attributes. You know these omni-attributes? Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omni-whatever's good. God is that. Take all those omnis, take them with all the justice and mercy and righteousness and goodness and all that, bundle it all up together and say, if you have all of those all together in their primal unity, so that they don't contradict each other, they work perfectly together, they've never not been there, they're always there in perfect, simple godness, and that shines forth. That's glory. That's the glory of God. That's what we're trying to talk about here. That's why definition's got to be a little bit tautological. The thing God's got, that's glory. It's a kind of godness. Well, um, God behaving as God and being seen to be all that he is. This is why we look to God and say, God, in, a, in an important sense, seeks his own glory. He, he seeks his own glory. Everything that happened should happen to the glory of God. Now, it sounds weird to us because we shouldn't be glory seekers or glory hounds or glory hogs, um, you know, someone on, the, someone on a sports team who takes credit for something. Um, if they didn't do it, that's terrible, right? They're stealing glory. If they did do it and they just keep you reminding you they did it, that's just annoying, right? It's a glory hound. Um, 
But we need to reorient when we think about God and his glory. Uh, It seems like if I'm supposed to be humble, God should be humble too. But the more you think about that, the more you realize it won't work, right? The reason you and I are supposed to be humble is we have a lot to be humble about in the sense that we have good cause to be humble. We're limited. We're not everywhere. We're not doing everything. We're not all powerful. We're sinful. We're not doing everything right. And um, we get most of what we are from outside of ourselves, right? So every time we take credit for something, we have to admit, ooh, a lot of other people had their hands on that to make that happen and to make me who I am and to set me up with a golden opportunity to do that one little good thing I did there. Um, None of those things apply to God. He's not finite. He's not sinful. He didn't receive what he is from another source. And so it would be really weird for God to make the universe and say, that's pretty great, isn't it? And for us to respond, well, I mean, you don't want to take all the credit, do you? I mean, you should be humble about that, right? Like, then you try to explain to God why he should be humble, and nothing you say makes sense. Because, in fact, God did it out of, out of his own goodness. In fact, the big rule that we follow is not be humble and give glory to others. That's just how the rule applies to us. The actual big rule is something like, give glory to the one to whom glory is due. Now, when you apply the rule, give glory to the one to whom glory is due to yourself, that means you need to be humble, because not a lot of glory is due to you. You can sort of root around in it and say, I actually did that good thing, and I I would like a little credit for that. Thank you. I would would like to copyright that. I would like to make money on that. That's a good thing I did, right? Um, But you can still be humble about that while naming it. When you turn to God and apply that same rule, give glory to whom glory is due, well, what's the ceiling on the amount of glory due to God for what he's done? When God follows that rule, if it's proper to say God follows a rule, he gives glory to God. In that sense, we're all following the same rule, and the rule works exactly the same. It's something like everybody give glory to God. Another way to think about this is to think about God's glory, you could paraphrase it as God's beauty, the beauty of God. It might seem vain for God to show his beauty or to manifest his beauty. It reminds us of people who strut and show off and say, look at me, ain't I great? Have you noticed my beauty? Check it out. Um, It seems unseemly. It is unseemly. But what if, just hypothetically, think with me on this one, what if you were the most beautiful thing in the world? Wouldn't, in fact, the generous thing to do be to show people the beauty that you had rather than hogging the beauty? We got to go to the Art Institute yesterday And it's great that they made a big building to display those things so you could go there and see the beautiful things that are on display. What if they just locked the doors and said, man, there's some good stuff in here, but uh, it's not for you to look at. Well, I want to look at it. Like, why are you being so greedy to hide the beautiful stuff? Well, that's that's not a perfect analogy to say that God's the most beautiful thing in the world because God's not a thing and God's not just in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But it at least gets you a little further down the road of thinking, why should God call attention to his glory and exalt himself? Um, It's right for him to do so because he's the one who deserves all the glory, but it's also good for us that he does so because it's manifesting to us the greatest beauty that we could encounter. Now, it's the gospel of God, it's the gospel of the glory of God, but what I really want to talk about is that it's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. I want to spend a little time on this because it's something that um, I know you know what it is, but as I start to describe it, you might get the feeling, why haven't I ever thought about this before? Uh, when, I, when I explain this to people, it, it seems kind of new, but I want to encourage you to remember, it's not new, you, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is 
This is really basic to who God is, and you're probably subliminally aware of it from understanding what Scripture says. Blessedness in the Bible, that this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Blessedness is a divine attribute. It's one of those divine perfections we talked about. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61, uh, we see the word blessed as a title for God. People ask Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the son of the blessed? They're trying to honor the name of God by not speaking it. So they're trying to think of another thing to call it. And they say, are you the son of the blessed? It just works as a name of God. And then um, uh, we're looking at the use of the word blessed here in 1 Timothy 1.11. We'll look at 1 Timothy 6.15 also that calls God the blessed and only sovereign, uh, the king of kings and lord of lords. In fact, blessedness is one of the most important of the divine attributes. Uh, it's not in our mealtime prayer. We don't say God is good, God is great, God is good, God is blessed, because I don't know what rhymes with blessed. And I also don't know if you're supposed to pronounce it blessed or blessed. I'm going to do both. Sounds holier to say a blessed, so I'll say it that way. And it works in the hymn, right? God in three persons, blessed trinity. Um, but it's, it's the same word, just extra syllable if you want it. Blessedness is one of the most important of the divine attributes, because just like glory sums up all the godness of God as it shines forth, like God behaving is God's glory, God being blessed is God having all those divine attributes in his character, all those perfections in their fundamental primal unity, never not having any of them, never resolving little conflicts between his different character traits, like we do, right? We're always working out the different character attributes we've got. Gods get along really well. They're, they're all just God, right? When you get to blessedness, you're not saying godness shining forth. You're saying, what would it be like to think of what God experiences in having all of these perfections? It's this kind of unaskable question. What's it like to be God? What, what does it feel like to have all those attributes? What is the, not considered outwardly as glory, but considered inwardly as being the one who has all those perfections, who is God? What, what's that like? Well, the answer is blessedness. If you bundle them all up, put them all together, and think about God, how God feels in having all that, being all that, to be that good and that faithful and that excellent, that's blessedness. What glory is to the outward shining of God's goodness, blessedness is to the inward possession of all that goodness and greatness. The blessedness is what I'm talking about. Blessed is the answer to the question, what's it like to be God? Uh, there's an old Protestant theology uh, called the Leiden Synopsis that says, defines blessedness this way. God's blessedness is that by which he enjoys himself and rests in himself, in need of nothing else. That by which he enjoys himself and rests in himself, in need of nothing else. There's never a situation where you can ask, why did God do that? Why is God like that? And come with the answer, well, he needed it from outside. Right? God's always got, built in, as who he is, the sufficient answer to everything about who he is and what he does. It's all in there. He rests in himself in need of nothing else. Blessedness. But you can already hear in the word, it's also happiness, right? It's the ultimate joy. It's, it's more than just happiness and joy. It's the real thing that happiness and joy are kind of a shadow of. Um, the good news is that God has blessedness. That God is blessed. That he's sufficient. Uh, he's self-sufficient, all-sufficient. God is not waiting on something outside of the divine life to make the divine life complete. He has all the perfections of being himself. And he knows that he has them 
and he loves that he has them, and that's what it's like to be God. There was a pastor named uh, William Nibb, K-N-I-B-B, William Nibb, who read this passage. He read it, and he would paraphrase it, the gospel of the happy God. The gospel of the happy God. Um, Charles Spurgeon quotes this and says, when Nibb called this passage uh, the gospel of the happy God, it wasn't a mistake. He wasn't misspeaking. It was the very gist of the matter. The gospel of the happy God. Now, happy is not quite the right word for us, right? It would feel weird if we um, tried to simplify holy, holy, holy and saying um, God in three persons, happy trinity. That would, that would sound funny. That would sound weird because it would be weird because um, happy is a human concept that God's got, it's got things built into it like circumstance, right? If you do the etymology of it, it it's, a, it's a state of pleasure and satisfaction resulting from circumstances. It's very closely connected to the idea of luck kind of back in the roots of the English language and some of the other languages we get those words in. Um, but William Nibb looked at it and said, it's the gospel of the happy God. Well, this was William Nibb, uh, lived in the 19th century. He was a British Baptist missionary to Jamaica. And what he really is most famous for um, was being an emancipationist, that he was fighting slavery in the Jamaican context at a time when um, the odds were against him. And he took a lot of persecution. I was reading some of the story of, of his life and his fights there in Jamaica. Uh, his house was surrounded, I think, three nights in a row by a group of 50 people throwing rocks at it. I'm just trying to picture, like, what's that like to have that going on outside your house? Um, Nib uh, was visiting another pastor's church one time, and although the other pastor was supposed to preach the evening service, this is in Jamaica, um, the other pastor was weak from a recent bout of the flu, so Nib preached it himself, and his last sermon was on this passage, 1 Timothy 1.11, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, and as he read it, he said, it's the gospel of the happy God. He knew that it was good news to say that God is happy. Now, happy is just the entry word. You've got to go through that to say, well, happy in this divine sense of blessedness, of possessing all the divine perfections. Um, Nib fought for the freedom of the Jamaican slaves. One of the biggest arguments that he got into was when slavers made the claim that their slaves were better off in slavery because they were happy. This was the argument. And Nib had to write at great length to say, no, I've seen them. Here's some really gruesome reporting about their bondage, about their beatings, um, about their enslavement, about the breaking up of their families, about their lives cut short. That's not happiness. That's degradation. If you're going to call those slaves happy in the Jamaican slavery situation, you're evacuating the word happy of all meaning. Now, what Nib never did in his life, because the last sermon he ever preached was on this passage, I would love to have seen him put together his concept of human happiness and what doesn't count as happiness with his embrace of the gospel of the happy God. Because he knew that slavers were just using the word happy to cover up injustice and keep things as they are. But Nib knew what real happiness was. Real happiness is the blessedness of God. Real happiness, the gospel of freedom and salvation and liberation and transformation, is when humans and all their need come under the care of the happy God who has no needs whatsoever. When some of Nib's collaborators in the emancipation work were imprisoned for their work, he went by their prison cell to visit them and heard them singing hymns to God. And here's, here's one that he recorded hearing them sing. O thou from whom all goodness flows, I lift my heart to thee. In all my sorrows, conflicts, woes, dear Lord, remember me. 
these miserable people in their need could cry out to the blessed God from whom all goodness flows. This is the gospel of the happy God. Blessedness. Especially when I paraphrase it as happy, um, we're in this kind of danger zone where I'm asking you to consider a fundamental emotional state of God. And and at this point, we have to say, well, it's it's not like that. God's emotions are more complicated and more simple than ours. Um, uh, but, but, But it's worth asking because what I'm asking is, deep in your heart, what do you think is fundamentally going on deep in God's heart? I try never to preach from The Simpsons, but there's a moment uh, in one of the early episodes uh, where Homer and Marge are listening to You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone. It's a flashback scene, so it's a 70s thing. They're listening to You Light Up My Life, and Homer's really moved by this, and he says, whoever she was singing that to must be the happiest man in the world. And Marge points out, I think she's singing it to God. And he goes, oh, well, he's always happy. No, wait, he's always mad. Anyway. (laughs) That's about as far as Homer can get in doing the theology. But what you glimpse there is Homer's trying the best he can to get in touch with fundamentally deep in his heart. What does he think is the fundamental truth of what's deep in God's heart? And he was actually right the first time. Fundamentally, it's got to be something like happiness. Now, we would immediately want to unpack that and say it's deeper than that. It's the blessedness of God as we've glimpsed it here in Scripture, as we've talked about it in a reflection on the divine attributes. But happiness is basically what's going on there. Now, it's easier to think about if you bring in the biblical idea of the Trinity, and I'm almost not going to do that at all. I'm just trying to introduce the concept of blessedness, because it's all kind of there in the hymn, Holy, 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 right? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's the main place we run into this word, blessed. Um, And I'm just going to do blessed right now, but if you just glimpse at the idea of the Trinity real quick, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not incomplete, lonely, or needy in their divine life as God. They're not sitting around heaven wishing that they had a fourth person so they could play bridge or something like that. Uh, They're not sitting around heaven going like, oh, it's so so quiet up here in the drafty mansions of heaven. I wish we had the pitter-patter of little feet around to introduce some life and fellowship and love. No, one thought about what's going on in the eternal life of the communion of the triune God is enough to make you go, yeah, that can't be right. The three persons are not sitting around going like, where's the fun? I thought this was going to be a party, right? The blessedness of God is conspicuous when you reflect on the love and fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, God in three persons is fully and completely happy and fulfilled without us. Now, when God brings us into that fellowship, it's for our salvation, not his enrichment. It's good news for us. It's good news about God. It's good news for our benefit. So ponder this blessedness of God. It's a neglected doctrine in our modern world because sometimes it seems like we're so obsessed with the reality of suffering, we're so distracted with the evils that are in our face and in our own lives that we get a little stingy about blessedness. I don't know if you you kind of feel this. When I try to describe to you God being happy, do you kind of have that thought like, how can God be happy with all that stuff that's going on in the world? How dare he be happy? It's it's kind of this sense that like, uh, if I can't be happy, can't nobody be happy? right? If God's not outraged, God must not be paying attention. God should be on Twitter yelling about stuff all the time because the world is messed up. How could he be happy? That doesn't even make sense. Is he not paying attention? We're tempted to say, if I can't be happy, no one can be happy, including God. But in fact, the good news is that because God is happy, the omnipotent blessedness of God is coming to get you, right? William Blake's got a little line in one of his poems, oh, he gives to us his joy, that our grief he may destroy. 
that only works if God's got a big pot of joy that he's already sitting on, right? That, that's the less technical theological way to put it. Um, the blessedness of God is what funds God moving into our lives to confront our wretchedness and misery. Why is the blessedness of God the gospel? It's the foundation of our salvation. It's the fountain of all our blessings. Think of it this way. If God isn't happy, then nobody's happy. There are a couple of famous sayings about happiness that I think you can kind of revolve to get your mind into this just a little bit more. The first one's from ancient Greece. Um, Sophocles, the playwright, said, call no man happy until he is dead. It's one of these Greek tragedies where it starts out, everything's going great, then a terrible thing happens, and you look back on it and go, that guy was never happy. What a miserable life. But in Act 1, Scene 1, he came on stage and said, everything's going great for me. I can't imagine anything going wrong. Then the tragedy occurs, and at the end, you're going, wow, what a horrible life. That, that was never working out. And Sophocles' conclusion is, don't call anyone happy till they're dead. Once they're dead and you bury them, you can look back on it and say, okay, that turned out all right. Um, I was talking to a screenwriter who said, you know the difference between a tragedy and a comedy, if you're making a movie that's like a happy movie or a sad movie? It all comes down to where you end it. Yeah, Because you're telling the story, and if you end it at the right point and have the music swell and then the credits roll, great, happy ending. If you go 15 minutes further and show something bad happen and then fade to black and the credits roll, sad movie, tragic. Yeah. It all comes down to where you end it. And so we're all kind of waiting to see how it will turn out. Like, are you happy? I don't know. Not sure how it's going to turn out. I mean, I'm relatively happy, but I still got to see how this works. God's not waiting to see how his life turns out, right? God, God's not wondering, like, you, you couldn't even say, call no God blessed until he's dead, because that doesn't work, right? That, that rule doesn't even work. Um, this morning I got up and my daughter greeted me with the news, mom made cowboy coffee, stovetop coffee. Um, well, that's good news because I was wanting some coffee, but it turns out it was predicated on some bad news. The coffee maker quit working. Um, but that was predicated on some good news. It only goes on the blink for one day, so it'll be back online tomorrow. It's just every bit of information we get is nested good news and bad news all commingled, right? I don't even know whether to uh, rejoice or lament that cowboy coffee is ready because it's good news, but it's predicated on bad news. The blessedness of God isn't like that. It's unmixed good news. It's hard for us to sort out good and bad because we don't know where we're coming from or where we're going, but God doesn't have that kind of problem. He knows where he's coming from, and God knows where he's going. Or maybe it's better to say, God's not coming from anywhere or going anywhere. Or maybe it's more theologically correct to say, God is coming from God and going to God because it's all already complete and perfect in the divine life. All of us are developing. All of us are becoming ourselves. We're on our way to being who we are. I wasn't me before I met my wife. I wasn't me before I had my kids. I have a story, a biography. But you can't write a novel about God's coming of age. Right? You can't write a, a, what do they call it, a Bildungsroman. You can't write a story about how God um, had a lot of potential and then certain things happened and he actualized that potential and kind of turned into a certain kind of person. Then we go, yeah, that's nice how that worked out. That's not how God works. He says, I am that I am, not I wonder what I'm going to turn into, or things are looking promising so far. This is the perfection of God. Why do all blessings flow from God? Because he's all blessing. Here's the second saying, just briefly, I want to introduce you to. It's from Acts 20. It's a saying of Jesus that Paul reports in a speech. It's more blessed to give than receive. 
Here's our word again. It's more blessed to give than receive. Well, by that scale, who's the most blessed? The givingest. Yeah, that's a word, right? The givingest. The most blessed is the one who gives the most. God is the most blessed. The one who gives not out of need and not out of greed, but out of goodness and perfection. It's good news that God is blessed. It's good news for the sinner. Good news, sinner. God is blessed. Good news, you can't steal his joy. The Puritan writer Stephen Charnock defined sin as attempted robbery of God's blessedness. Charnock said, Sin in its own nature endeavors to render God the most miserable being. Sin endeavors to subject the blessed God to the evil of every person in the world and say God's not allowed to be happy if every person who is resisting happiness refuses to be happy. You might have heard these life coaches who say, don't let people steal your joy. I don't know if that's good advice or not. I'm not a life coach. Um, but, but, but you even see these memes online, right? Not today, Satan. I'm not letting you steal my joy. Uh, I wonder if that's a good story of the universe. God saying to Satan, not today, Satan. You're not going to steal my joy. Um, God's got blessedness, and Charnock defines sin as an attempt to rob God of his blessedness. Of course, it's also an attempt to rob God of his glory. And there's a sense in which you can rob God of his glory by taking credit for what he did. But you didn't really rob him because if God's got a bank of joy with uh, 100 units in it and you stole some of God's joy or glory, God's account balance didn't go down. So it is a sin, but it's sort of like attempted joy robbery, yeah, which is bad. Don't do it. But it's good news for sinners that um, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble, but it doesn't affect God's goodness, joy, blessedness, or uh, glory. It's good news for the sufferer. Good news, sufferer. God is blessed. God exceeds pain. If we had more time and if I was Mozart, I would now introduce a strongly contrasting theme of suffering and God participating in it with us. Um, but I'm not that good at kind of weaving the two themes together, and I really just want to make sure we've got the theme of blessedness in front of us. God gives to us his joy that our grief he may destroy. God can solve our pain problem and take our pain onto himself precisely because he doesn't have his own pain problem that he's trying to deal with, right? It's because of God's blessedness that he can move into our misery and do something about it. It's good news for the cursed. It's good news for the blessed. You know, there's a, there's a secularized theology of blessing out there, hashtag blessed. You can buy a little wooden cutout at uh, the craft store, you know, blessed, and put it up with all your stuff. Um, and, and, and there's a grain of truth in it. But then there's this also, if blessings just terminate on themselves, and I'm just blessed for the sake of being blessed, and that's all there is to it, then it's a godless form of blessing, right? The fact that God is blessed means that the blessings that come into our life we can actually celebrate because they're not an end in themselves. They're not just, ain't I doing great, I'm hashtag blessed, but they're actually pointers to the greatness and goodness and blessedness of God. So it's good news for everyone that God is blessed. It's good news for the blessed because blessings are not an end in themselves. The Bible has a lot to say about who is blessed. We're talking about how God is blessed, but there's this major theme in the Bible about which human person is blessed. Do you know these, these sayings? Blessed is the one, Psalm 1, who walks not in the way of the wicked or sits in the seat of scoffers, um, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates in it. That's the one who is blessed. Another Psalm says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. 
Uh, blessed is the one who calls on the name of the Lord. How blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. Blessed, basically, is whoever aligns with the blessedness of the blessed God. That's the kind of human being who is blessed. And it turns out this is the big quest of biblical wisdom. Um, this is important. This matters. This is why the leading idea of Jesus' leading sermon is a series of statements about who's blessed. Yeah? Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. The, oh, that's the other big word for the blessedness of God, the Beatitude of God. Blessed is the one who is the basic form of biblical wisdom. The big question is, who's blessed? The main theological answer is God's blessed. The, the ethical question about wisdom is, what kind of person is blessed? And the Bible has the answers to that. Not everybody's blessed. Blessed is the one who. There are no such statements for God, though. You don't have a statement like, blessed is the God who happens to do this or that. It's just, blessed is God. It could say, blessed is the God who is God, because God is blessed by definition. Humans are blessed by conditional participation in that necessary divine blessedness. Remember the definition that said God's blessedness is that by which he enjoys himself and rests in himself with no other need of anything else? It's the same rule for us. Our blessedness is that by which we enjoy, not ourselves, but God, and are in need of nothing else beyond God. Our only blessedness, really, is God's blessedness, because God makes his blessedness ours. So, one final word here about the way that we should live in light of the blessedness of God. I hope that at least once or twice in my account of divine blessedness, um, it has seemed to you that this is a very exalted doctrine that is not about you. I hope there were moments in which you just kind of glimpsed how high above us this confession is. I wouldn't mind if it flashed across your mind that you were in some way, somehow, kind of irrelevant to the divine blessedness. There's a little bit more to say about that, but that little moment of insight where you go, wow, you're just talking about a thing that's true about God, and maybe I could plug into this later, but this is really changing the subject from my felt needs and my real needs. You might have even felt that the divine blessedness kind of threatens to float away to Olympus and be irrelevant to you, because other religions, by the way, have a theology of divine blessedness. It's very different from our gospel of the blessedness of God. But Zeus and all those Olympian bad boys, they were blessed too, right? They sat around on clouds drinking, uh, what did they drink? Ambrosia. Yeah, the food of the gods and stuff. And their idea of blessedness was to every now and then mess with humans, right? It's a very different idea. It's a very pagan idea of blessedness, different from the Christian concept of it. Um, of course, the blessedness of God is not really finally irrelevant to you. Its connection to the gospel has been evident right here from 1 Timothy 1.11 and through the entire account that we've talked about. But that little moment of insight that you got, that little feeling you got like, this isn't about me at all, is it? Um, when you ponder the blessedness of the blessed Trinity above all worlds, that is a glimpse of reality, and, and that's worth holding on to. There's something important about it. In our darkest hours, in its own way, it's as necessary to us to understand that God's blessed with or without us to understand that God shares his blessedness with us, right? This is a, this is a hard one to get, so I want to illustrate it. it. It seems more likely that you would say, God sharing his blessedness with me, that's the sweet consolation that meets my needs, that that's where I'm going to live emotionally. That's where I'm going to be centered at. Yes, that's probably true. Also, you need that little glimpse that this is way above you. So there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Samwise seem like they're beyond all hope. 
I know I just split the crowd, like half of you said, yes, I like anything illustrated with Tolkien, and the other half are thinking like, oh, is this going to be elves? Right? Okay. But, but bear with me, this is, this is a really transferable part. Um, Frodo and Samwise, this even works if you've just seen the movies, they're beyond all hope and help. Samwise is keeping watch out of sheer anxiety and ineffective fretfulness. He's not really doing anything good, he's just like too nervous to sleep, so worried, so many problems, what's going to happen, where's that spider, etc. Um, but then he looks up. And in the book, here's how Tolkien describes it. Far above the Efel Duath in the west, the night sky was still dim. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of the shadow. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. Then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his master Frodo's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid down by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. The good news of a God who loves us includes the good news that there is a light and a high beauty forever beyond the reach of this small, local, passing shadow which is ruining all our lives and perpetrating injustice. It's as bad as you think it is, but there's something above it. And one little glimpse of one little pinprick of this supreme, superior, untouchable blessedness of God can give you the kind of hope you need to sleep, the kind of hope you need to get up and do stuff. The good news of uh, um, just knowing that there's happiness somewhere can change everything. And it's not just a little happiness somewhere, like everything's bad except maybe in Hawaii. Right? It's not that kind of a thing. It's that there is a vast sea of blessedness that dwarfs our misery and finally transforms it. Now, it's not a perfect illustration. We're not hobbits, even if you've got furry feet and have seen the movie 20 times. Uh, this is not Mordor. Los Angeles is Mordor. Um, we've stayed, but, but it's still, it's the glimpse of the blessedness of God that's transferable. It's the glimpse that we get in 1 Timothy 1.11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. We've staked a lot on a few words here from the very beginning of 1 Timothy, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. But Paul calls God blessed one other time in this book. If you look at the very end, 1 Timothy 6.11, I want you to see how practical this impractical message of blessedness is. Look how Paul applies it in 1 Timothy 6.11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Thank you.